Well, this morning we are launching a new series, our Just God series in the book of Habakkuk. Now, I know the title might be a little bit, uh, could be taken in some different ways. Uh, So as you look at Just God, you might be thinking, is he saying merely God? Or as you look at Just God, uh, you could take it in the sense of the God of justice or a God who does justice. Well, hopefully that becomes clearer as we go through this series. But um, I saw some of you when it was announced that we were in Habakkuk, Look sort of at your neighbor and say, is this like a a Bible drill sort of test to see if Habakkuk's in the Bible or not, right? Now, some of you are like, is Habakkuk in the Bible? Uh, It is. Always look in the table of contents. That's a quick sort of fun run to see what's in the Bible and what's not. Uh, Hopefully, you know. If not, that's a great place to look. Uh, But others of you, as you're thinking about the book of Habakkuk, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, why is it that I'm not so familiar with it? And it could be because it's hiding amongst those 12 minor prophets that you find at the end of the Old Testament. Now, they're minor not because they are less important or less authoritative than the other major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, but instead they are shorter. They're shorter prophets. And what's interesting is there's a lot of debate as far as when Habakkuk took place, when he prophesied. Now, we want to put it in the original context, and so to do that, usually you're trying to figure out Where is it? What were the conditions that were existing during this prophecy of Habakkuk? Here's the problem. He's never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He's traditionally understood to have prophesied to the nation of Judah, uh, somewhere around the prophecies of Zephaniah and Nahum, uh, maybe a contemporary of Jeremiah. And the most telling clue that we have in this book as far as uh, where it took place is this mention of the Chaldeans in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, the Chaldeans, of course, are, are the Babylonians, uh, we believe. That, that's who they're associated with, the Babylonians. Uh, they are the people that produced that, that horrific king, Nebuchadnezzar, who took, Babel, or, who took Judah off into exile. Now, I want to ask you just to hang with me for a second as we go through a little bit of history to give you context for this book, and we'll use it throughout the series. Can y'all hang with me for just a little bit of history? Y'all okay with that? I'm getting no responses, man. Yes, okay, okay, we got some of you guys who are gonna hang with me. I'll let the others of you know when you can like check back in for what's going on. But you'll remember that Israel and Judah were divided. They became divided kingdoms after the reign of Solomon. And uh, after that reign, uh, you'll remember that Assyria became a world power and eventually took Israel into captivity, the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. Judah was still autonomous. But in 701, uh, one of these kings of Assyria, Sennacherib, took the gates of Jerusalem. He came straight to the gates of Jerusalem. He was threatening this faithful king, Hezekiah, king of Judah, because he refused to cower to Assyria. Now, God destroyed the Assyrian army overnight and sent the king of Assyria running. Now, they still had a kind of authority and power in the land, but they left Judah alone. Now, then comes King Manasseh. Now, King Manasseh, if you think about, like, who is the poster child for wicked kings in Judah? That would be Manasseh. He's a bad guy. Uh, He's the guy who reigned for 45 years in Judah from 687 to 642 And he introduced all kinds of abominations, like to the cult practice, to the temple, like cult prostitution and idols. And and he even had child sacrifice in Judah. Now, he led a short reform at the end of his reign, but he sealed the eventual downfall of Judah. Manasseh had a grandson, Josiah, who came to power. And if you're looking for a, a kind of poster child for what a good king looks like in Judah, it, it's Josiah. And Josiah led the nation in reforms. He became king uh, after his dad was assassinated, just two years after his dad reigned. Uh, He became king at eight years old. But by the age of about 20, it seems that he is leading the nation into reforms. And catch this, this is before he's found the book of the law. So when he finds the book of the law, all of a sudden, he begins purging even more these horrible abominations from the temple and leading them into pure worship seems that that book of the law being found might have marked the beginning of Zephaniah's ministry. Now, Assyria still held some power. Jeremiah prophesied against Josiah's wicked son, though, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was not a good king. He famously insisted that he have 
a better house with cedar, a better house than his dad had. You know, his dad was okay with like shabby chic, uh, but he wanted something that was nice, like nicer than his dad. Uh, He was a, a, a king who was proud. And he demanded that people work without pay to build him a house. You can imagine him just kind of bringing the whip to them as they're making uh, preparations for his house. Now, it was this king that Nebuchadnezzar would later carry off into exile in 586 BC. Scholars generally place Habakkuk in one of three places in that timeline. Now, Now, some have dated this prophecy during the dark days of Manasseh's reign, pointing to Jeremiah and uh, Zephaniah, potentially depending on Habakkuk's imagery. In other words, they say maybe Jeremiah and Zephaniah places are using language from Habakkuk, uh, which would mean that this was during Manasseh's dark days. That's one option. Another option is to date it during the days of Josiah, just before they find the book of the law. But I I think I'm going to be working throughout this series, I know I am, with the majority opinion that dates this prophecy during the reign of Jehoiakim, 608 to 597. It's a time of relative peace and prosperity, but where God's people turn from God along with their king just before Babylon would take them into exile. It's kind of a calm before the storm that I find this prophet Habakkuk coming in. And we'll find this morning in those verses that Malachi just read, you can come back if you're tired of history, and and in this moment, you find Habakkuk beginning his prophecy with a lament over the injustice of God's people towards God's people in verses one to four. He's upset because he is looking at how God's people are treating God's people in Judah. Now, the Bible is replete with this language of lament, which is what this section is. Uh, In fact, you'll remember that if you read through the books of the Bible, we even have a whole book called Lamentations, which is a lament. See, lamenting, a lament is just a complaint over the brokenness of this life. It's a a declaration that what I see is, is not good or right. Now, lamenting injustice in a broken world does not reflect a lack of faith. That's something I want us just to be mindful of this morning. There is a real sense in which there is a just cause for righteous people to cry out to God, lamenting this world in a way of faith. It is a clarity of vision that sees the world that God does, as God does, that says that it is lamentable. See, laments are deeply theological. They are a heart cry of God's people to God as they are seeking to trust in the perfections of God's goodness, his sovereignty and justice amidst the brokenness of this world. Do you see it? It's like you're looking at the world and you know who God is and the world that he made and there's this huge distance between your pain and this world and you're wondering, how do I understand God in all of this? One author says, lament stands in the gap between pain and and promise. And this is where we have Habakkuk standing in this book. In fact, you'll notice that this prophecy, if you read the whole book, it's short, you can do it quickly. It begins with lamentation in chapter one, but as we get to the end, there's a psalm of rejoicing. So how do we get from that place of lament and despair to rejoicing over the character of God and his promises? I think this book gives us a roadmap for that. Now, our big idea this morning is that lamenting the brokenness of this world and trusting God go hand in hand. Lamenting the the brokenness of this world and trusting God, they they go hand in hand. Now, we'll see this first in verse 1. You notice uh, there the oracle Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, I find this brief introduction to Habakkuk interesting in verse 1. Look what it says. Verse 1, he just begins by saying this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now Habakkuk isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, as I said before, and some have looked at the meaning of his name to find some significance to the meaning of what he's doing. In fact, Martin Luther, y'all know we had like Reformation Day yesterday, so I had to quote Martin Luther. He said this, Habakkuk signifies an embracer or one who 
embraces another, takes him into his arms. He embraces his people and takes them to his arms, i.e., he conforms them and holds them up as one embraces a weeping child. To quiet it with the assurance that if God wills, it shall soon be better. And isn't that good? Yeah, I'm not sure that's what this means, but I love that, that imagery. And I really do hope that even if his name doesn't mean embrace or wrestle, as some have said, that when we get to the end of this, we really do get this sense that this prophecy feels like a warm hug at the end of the day. Now, we don't get a resume from Habakkuk, even though some try to tie him to the Levites or even a temple singing group of Levites. But Habakkuk shows that the message is more important than the messenger. I think that's what we get from the absence of a resume in Habakkuk speaking for God. It's that the the message is more important than the messenger, right? The, The prophecy is more important than the prophet. It's kind of like your, your mail that you get, it's more important than the mailman, right? If you're getting a, a letter from a family member that's at war overseas, um, you're, you might kiss his face for, or her face, the mail person, for bringing you that letter. But what's more important is what that leper rep- letter represents and who it represents. And that's what we find in Habakkuk. God has delivered his word to us in the scriptures. In fact, that word oracle gives us a picture of the, the value of this message. That word for oracle actually means burden or a divine revelation that is communicated through God's spoke person. See, God has delivered this word to us in the scriptures. His words, the words of our creator, the words of our transcendent God, who we would not know unless he mercifully stooped to speak to us in ways that we could understand. He has spoken to us. We we shouldn't lose sight of the majesty the incredible nature of an infinite God speaking to finite creatures like you and me. And that's what we have in the scriptures. We have the very words of God. Now, here we know that God has delivered that word through all kinds of ways. He he speaks sometimes to prophets through dreams and sometimes through donkeys. Sometimes he speaks through angels and sometimes he speaks to them through other people. Now, I don't think this is telling us that God transmitted this revelation to Habakkuk through an ecstatic experience. You'll notice it says, this is the burden the prophet saw. I don't, th- I don't think that means to say that he had some kind of out-of-worldly, otherworldly experience, except that God has spoken to him. Now, here's what I think it means when it says this is the prophet, the burden the prophet saw. I think the oracle he saw is used in a double kind of way here. First, when Habakkuk looks around, you'll notice that as he's looking at Judah, what he does not see is justice. Did you see that? I don't see justice. And he asked if God sees what he sees. Do you see the injustice everywhere? See, he sees injustice everywhere. And take note again that by the end of this prophecy, Habakkuk's complaint is going to give way to rejoicing. But it's not a straight shot from lamentation about what he sees to the rejoicing that's going to come to the end. See, you'll notice that not only is it not, uh, not a straight shot, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Lamenting the world around you and rejoicing in God. Now, what happens from chapter one to chapter three? It's not going to be that God changes Habakkuk's position. His GPS coordinates do not change. What changes is his perspective. He's going to give him a word that helps him to see the world more clearly as God sees it. So first, the oracle Habakkuk sees helps him interpret the world he sees around him, changing his perspective. But also, second, notice that this oracle doesn't come from Habakkuk. It comes from God. What he sees is something that is coming to him from the outside. It's not something that he imagined or created in and of himself. This is from God to him. Now, periodically, I think it's just helpful to pull over the bus and talk a little bit about why we do what we do as Trinity Bible Church. If you come here, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I've noticed that you use this book called a Bible a lot. That's on purpose. See, we believe as a church that God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us in the scriptures, 
in a uniquely clear way. He has disclosed himself to us. He has made himself known to us with a kind of clarity that is not found anywhere else in creation. In fact, it's in such a way that he has spoken to us that we are told God's word literally raises spiritually dead people to eternal life. It's a word that equips God's people, all of his children, to please God and to find joy amidst the brokenness of this world, both now and forever. It's a unique word. No other word does that. That's why we preach the Bible. We believe the Bible is the best diet for a Christian. And the way that we go about giving Christians the Bible is through this thing we call expositional preaching. We are bringing God's word to you. And we believe that our job as preachers of the word is to actually declare what God has said. We are showing you and speaking God's words after him. You know the most important thing I'm going to say any given Sunday whenever I speak to you? is the most unoriginal thought ever. It is an ancient word that has been handed from God to me to give to you. That's what we are called to do. That's why as we preach expositionally, what we are doing is we are actually preaching, rotating from Old Testament to New Testament. Like some of you are like, I've noticed y'all preach the Old Testament. Why do you do that? Because it's God's word. Just like the New Testament. So we preach the Old Testament because we believe that the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and you need to see the full counsel of God. And so that's what we try to disclose to you. We are going book by book, verse by verse, through both Testaments, swift, uh, shifting from one genre to the next so that you get a big vision of who God is. This helps protect us against preaching our favorite points and not preaching hard texts like laments. Now, why do we do this? Well, it's because 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and sufficient to equip God's people for every good work. Every Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is good to equip you in your life to please God, to find the purpose of life, and to make it not just through the day, but into eternity with God. We want to expose you to God's full counsel, including everything from a, a gospel like John to a minor prophet like Habakkuk. See, God still speaks to his words through what he has spoken. Man truly does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what does Habakkuk have to say to you, to us? Well, check out what he says in verses two to three. This is where Habakkuk speaks directly to God with, with two separate but related complaints. So you'll notice he, he says two things here in this text. He gives two complaints in verses two to three. Now, I said before this is a lament. A lament is a kind of loud cry or howl. It's, a, it's an audible expression of grief. Now, lament articulates despair, but it's not meant to leave you there. Now, in verses two to three, Habakkuk asked two questions every one of us, I believe, has asked if we have experienced deep pain in this life. You've probably asked these same two questions. You know, he asked first, how long will I pray without an answer? Ever asked that question? Or what about this? Why are you allowing this to happen? You'll notice each. Uh, first in verse 2, he asked, how long will I pray without an answer? Look with me there again at verse 2. Here's how he says it. Oh, Lord. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Now here you see that he is crying out to God about unanswered prayers. Uh, maybe if, if you're reading through this, you're reminded like me of, of Garth Brooks and you're thinking it's a similar situation to his song, Unanswered Prayers, where he praises God for unanswered prayers. Now, the reason he does that, I think, is because he thinks that sometimes he says, I've noticed that I prayed for things, I didn't get them, and it worked out better than I could have imagined. This is like the opposite. This is a prayer that's happening day after day, and he is receiving no answer. And it's not working out better, but worse and worse. See, upon closer review, Habakkuk is upset, he's full of angst, he's lamenting the fact that God is not responding to his consistent 
cries to God for help. The how long signals that he has been crying for some time without receiving help from God. This is the cry of a, a righteous prophet. Suffering injustice, even on behalf of, of righteous sufferers in the nation, while begging God again and again to intercede. This is not to say that he doesn't see himself as a sinner. I think he has a good theology of sin. He understands sacrifices. But he's representing a kind of righteous remnant of Judah that's experiencing unjust violence at the hands of others. There's some great violence all around him that sends him to God in prayer again and again, night and day. He waits. He waits for an answer. He's waiting for God to respond, for the Calvary to show up, for God to bring salvation. Maybe like he brought to the gates of Hezekiah, and yet there is no salvation that has come. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I've prayed many of those prayers. There's much to lament. And there's a lot that we can lament personally, maybe that you have lamented personally. There are all kinds of reasons that we find the world breaking in on us. Sometimes there's just a general brokenness where the world crashes in on our heads because the world doesn't work the way that God created it to. Sometimes others hurt us. They, they treat us wrongly and unjustly. Sometimes our own sin causes lamentable pain. Anybody find like some kind of correspondence to maybe one of those categories or maybe D, all of the above? See, some of you have cried out again and again. I'm sure of it. How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long is it going to be before we can have a child? How long is it going to be till this grief over the loss of a spouse, a husband, or a wife, or, or a child? How long before it's going to subside? Or maybe how long uh, must I pray that you'll heal me of this disease of, of cancer, of Crohn's, or, or some kind of chronic illness? It seems so long. Is it ever going to go away? Or how long will you let this marriage or this friendship struggle before you bring peace? I've asked so much. How long will I be single? How long will I suffer with this lustful, proud heart? And here we see a righteous sufferer, though. It doesn't seem that he's upset about sin that he's brought upon himself or, or about some kind of uh, wrong that he has done that it results in, but instead it's this category of someone who is wicked who is causing him to suffer. And if you've ever experienced injustice at the hands of others, if you've been abused or slandered or had someone kill someone that you love you know what it's like to truly cry out this lamentation how long god till you bring what justice see that's the the heart of habakkuk the thing that he longs for is not just relief from the pain but god's justice to rain down to set things right have you prayed this prayer again and again, asking God to save you from the terrors of this life? Crying out in pain, brothers, sisters, it is a very human response. But as Mark Vrogop says in Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, lament is a prayer. It's not just a complaint, it's a prayer. It's a statement of faith. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. That, that's where we find lament. It is that, that paradox between the pain of this life and confidence that the God who is sovereign over all things is good and is for you. So if you're struggling with grief, it could be because you've not taken your cares to God and lament. Or maybe you've, you've given up on taking them to him and have lost confidence in the promises of God amidst your pain. Have you ever been there? Things hurt so bad, God has taken so long, and you begin to slowly lose a grip on confidence in God's promises? Take your cares boldly before the throne of God's grace, trusting that he's eager to show mercy to his children. But notice there's a second question that's different but related here. It's not just 
how long am I going to pray and you're not going to answer? But second, why do you allow your people to suffer? He says this in verse 3. Look, look what he says. He asks, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Now, here God's prophet, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is taking God's side against sin. Do you see it? The prophet doesn't want to see sin. He, he doesn't want it before his eyes. He doesn't want to see sin or its consequences, the violence and the terror that's all around him. See, we live in a staunchly individualistic society that, that might have trouble understanding this. See, we as Christians believe in an objective standard of justice that comes from God to us. We believe that God, because he made us, knows how we are to work. He knows the secrets to life and to joy, and he has not kept them as secrets. He has displayed them to us in his word. But we live in a culture that's staunchly individualistic. We are humanistic. We believe that the purpose of humanity is really for us to have some kind of self-actualization experience where we find ourselves. And whatever we find and decide is worthy and valuable and virtuous is equally good, such that you might love something that's the opposite of what I love and what God loves, and that's okay because everybody's right, unless you tell me I'm wrong. See, society views true happiness in terms of individual expression without any authority, any rules, any truth hindering your pursuit. The world says sin leads to joy and obedience leads to sorrow. The Bible says sin leads to sorrow and holiness leads to happiness. It's a different understanding of the world. One comes from God and one comes from the world. And here the prophet is taking God's side against the culture that permeates him. And he says, I see what's normal and the violence that is all around me. And it's not right, God. Why? Because you say so. I'm taking your side against this. So why does God stand by idly? That's his question. He knows that God is good and sovereign and just. So why is he not moved? Well, the prophet's zeal leads him to lament. And in this lament, he's asking the question each of us might be tempted to ask when evil surrounds us and when we're exhausted by the pain of this life. Why, God, do you allow your people to endure this? This is what theologians call theodicy, the, the idea of of God's sovereignty and goodness in light of the sin and the evil that is in the world. How do those, those things coexist? Well, we're going to talk about that later. So you'll need to come back to future sermons as we deal with this. But here, don't miss this. Did you see that the prophet of God takes God's side against sin? Now, let me ask you this. When you lament to God, what do you lament? I think it's entirely reasonable to lament the brokenness of this world and the way that it affects you. But are you simultaneously looking at the world through the lens of, of God's word and how humanity is supposed to operate? And are you lamenting that God's justice is not on earth as it is in heaven? Do you have that supernatural kind of view of the goodness of God longing for it to be present all before you? Do you lament offenses to yourself or do you lament offenses to God? Do you take God's side against sin or do you take sin's side against God? Are you that person that says, you know what, um, I, I love sin and, and I want to think that I love God, so I think I'm going to just say God's okay with me loving sin and loving him. See, that, that's not biblical. That, that's not a picture of what the new covenant Christian looks like. The new covenant Christian takes God's side against sin. God hates sin. God loves you. We should hate sin. But notice that Habakkuk argues that he doesn't even want to look at sin. He's praying as a righteous sufferer, lamenting the sin that's all around him. He doesn't argue with the character of God. Nowhere is he doing that. No, he's, he's actually, do you see it? He's arguing from the character of God. He's saying, I know who you are, and I see this situation, and these things do not add up to who you are. I believe the so in verse 4, though, summarizes his beef. 
That so is, I believe, a kind of thus in verse 4. So Habakkuk laments in verse 4 a paralyzed law and perverted justice. Do you see it? That's the thing that he's, he's, he's speaking to. Now, here we get a vision of what social injustice is specifically in Habakkuk. And it's in this final line, verse 4. Here's what he says. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now you'll notice that, that word for law, it, it's the word Torah. It's a specific kind of law. That, that law that stands at the heart of God's covenant with his covenant people, right? Uh, God made a relationship with Israel. He said, I'm, I'm making a, a covenant relationship with you. Here's the law that stands as far as the center of how we are to be behave. If you keep the law, here are the blessings that are coming. If you don't keep the law, here are the curses. Uh, this is the law that stands at the heart of that uh, loving relationship between God and his people. Now, the king was to meditate on this law day and night. He was to know it and to execute God's law. And God's king was supposed to be the arbiter of this law who carried it out amongst God's people. And Judah was that famed people from whom God promised to bring a great king who would bring about the healing and the ruling and the justice of the nations. But do you notice in this book that the king is noticeably absent and the wicked surround the righteous? In other words, wicked Jews are surrounding righteous Jews. And that doesn't mean that righteous Jews are not sinners in need of a savior, but they are a kind of faithful remnant who seek to obey Micah's call. You remember what Micah said a, a couple centuries before when he was speaking to Judah? Uh, he said in uh, Micah 6.8 that you as God's people should do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. And here we find that the people look like anything but. And yet there's a faithful remnant who are crying out about the violence all around them. They, they seek to obey God. And Habakkuk represents that righteous remnant crying out to God day and night for relief as they get pummeled by the wicked Jews. I bet some of you guys feel like you've been pummeled by culture and you just kind of crawled in here this morning. Well, Habakkuk has encouragement for us. But you know who they remind me of? The story really reminds me a lot of the book of Judges. If you read through the book of Judges, there's this repeated cycle that gets worse and worse where God's people sin against God some kind of external enemy comes in. They cry out to God because there's nowhere else to turn. And God sends a deliverer to save them. And they're like, thank you, God. And then the next chapter happens. And what happens? They sin against God again and worse. And it gets worse and worse. And they cry out and he responds. And they cry out and he responds. But then you get to the last five chapters of Judges. And you know who's noticeably absent for the rest of the book? God. They don't call on him, they don't cry out to him, and he doesn't show up, and you almost think God's given up on Israel. And the constant refrain at the end of the book is, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It feels like what Habakkuk's seeing. There's no king in Israel, no righteous king who's establishing justice. and Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. See, when God's people cry out to God and he doesn't show up, there is something drastically wrong. And here the righteous prophet is crying out and God is not responding and there is something wrong. Well, what's the violence in Habakkuk specifically though? I, I lean towards this scenario. You'll remember Josiah had been the just king. In fact, Jeremiah was speaking about Josiah and he says that he was the king who judged the cause of the poor and the needy and things were well. In other words, Josiah judged with equity. He was like Lady Justice with the blindfold. When people came to him, he made fair judgments. He didn't look on the outward appearance of man, but he looked at truth and he made decisions that didn't show preferential treatment to either the rich or the poor. He was fair in his judgments. He was equitable. He was just. He was a good king like David spoke about. You remember David in 2 Samuel 23? He's dying and he says, here's what a great king looks like. He is someone who judges justly and fears God. That's a good king. He'll be life-giving to his people. But Josiah's son Jehoiakim, that, that one that came after Josiah, 
He beat his people and he treated them as slaves. And as Habakkuk is looking around him, it seems like things are getting worse and worse. And it could be that the violence is actually coming from the top down, from the king down. Can you, can you relate to this? Since that leadership seems to be maybe even causing the problems to be worse and worse as things come down? Now, I know that the United States isn't Israel or Judah. But Habakkuk, really, it, it almost sounds like he's watching CNN or Fox News. I mean, he's looking around and he's like, this place is really messed up and scary, right? Everyone is talking about social justice on the news, and yet we find riots are increasing. COVID-19 cases and death seem to be on the rise. One of the most polarizing elections of my lifetime will be taking place this week. Justices are being chosen primarily based on whether or not they believe that it's legal to kill babies or not. And even the people of God are divided over masks or no masks, Democrat or Republican. Seems like there are fractions and frictions, uh, not just uh, outside of the church, but inside of the church. In fact, I was telling an elder just last night, I was talking to him and, and he said, you know, it might not be long before preaching the word of God in our country is actually seen as hate speech. And we were thinking, I guess all of our elders might be in jail. There's much to lament in our country. And maybe you have much to grieve today, not just nationally, but in your own personal life. And you're at the point of despair. Christian, if you're wondering how long and why God is allowing injustice in this world and in your life. Know that there's going to be more of an answer that's coming. But here's one important, important message this morning. Know that Jesus is God's answer. See, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would come, a great king who would also be a sufferer in Isaiah 53.3, saying, He is a despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, Jesus is the only truly, perfectly righteous sufferer. And one of the reasons that he had to come and take on human flesh and enter into humanity with us and for us was so that he might take upon us and you the griefs and sorrows that seem so insurmountable. He didn't leave you to it. God came to be with us, God with us, Emmanuel, so that he could take on those sufferings for us and with us. See, God is neither late nor purposeless in the brokenness of this world. He is absolutely with us in the injustice of this world. Injustice will not win. That's the story of the Bible. God has spoken. Injustice does not win. I am the just God who will establish justice on earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus came and experienced grief, not just for us at the cross, but with us. In fact, he was able in Matthew 17 to look on a man's demon-possessed son. He was throwing himself into like the pool and almost drowning and then the fire and almost and, and getting burned. And he needed relief, and so uh, he said, look, your disciples, they can't, they can't rid him of this, this thing that's taking hold of him. And Jesus lamented in that moment himself, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long? How long am I to bear with you? And what is it that he is apparently struggling with bearing in that moment? Catch this. It's not the sickness of the son. I'm sure he was like up in arms about that. But it was actually, he goes on to say, because of the disciples' little faith. He said, if you even had the mustard seed of faith in this moment, you could call a mountain and tell it to bend over and jump, and it would. And yet you can't even handle this small, perplexing demon. See, the thing that, that Jesus is the ultimate human is is most grieved about was the disciples' little faith and trust in God amidst the adversities that were all around them. But God, he has given us something more. John 17, he has given us a helper, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us to draw our attention towards God and his purposes for us in Christ. 
So when we lose sight of like everything Godward and are consumed by the chaos that is around us, we need to start preaching to ourselves and asking the Holy Spirit to help us have eyes to see God's promises and purposes for us in Christ. See, what grieved Jesus was their little faith, but God has given us something better, the Holy Spirit, that we might have faith in him amidst the pains of this life. He does not leave us. He is with us. Now, how can you show faith as a Christian with injustice all around? Let me close with uh, four or five quick applications, and I have something for a non-Christian. Let me say this, though. If you're having community group tonight, you can please add to this list. What are ways, what are ways that we can show faith as a Christian with injustice all around us. How do we do this? How should we be thinking about ourselves and God and the world around us? One, know that sin is harder for a holy God to endure than someone saved by grace. You know, it's, it's interesting. In this lament, Habakkuk is like, do you have any idea how hard it is to be patient with all of this violence and all of these sinners, God? the point where you're like, did he forget who God is? Perfect in holiness and justice, looking down on creation, creatures made in his image, broken and loving brokenness rather than loving God. We need to be reminded that whatever patience we have, it pales in comparison to the, the kind and gracious patience of God with us and with humanity. He's modeled patience with us. And catch this, God is angrier with injustice against you than you are. Do you see that? I think sometimes we're thinking like Habakkuk, like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? And God's saying, I have ways that are not your ways, purposes higher than your purposes, and this is more difficult for me than you, so just hang with me. Trust me that I'm not going to leave you. See, if the prophet and the remnant feel like their patience with sinners is being pushed to the brink, how much more patient is our perfectly just God with pervasive, who's pervasive injustice? Praise God that his mercy triumphs over justice. You know, that's why we can love our enemies. In fact, Paul says that we can love our enemies and that we should be patient and not vengeance, uh, practice vengeance on others, saying in Romans 12, 9, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you get that? You've been wronged. You've been suffering injustice. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take people to court at times who've done very evil things. But at the end of the day, a court on earth cannot bring the justice you desire. You trust God with that. God brings the justice that we long for. Second, don't grow weary in well-doing. It's so easy to despair a broken world. You ever been there? Like, man, I'm just tired. You ever get tired emotionally, spiritually, physically from trying to faithfully serve and love God? And, and when you're being wronged in the midst of that, and you want to almost quit or take a vacation from doing well, you might even start to be asked questions about Satan. Hey, do you think that unfaithfulness might be in this situation easier than faithfulness? It's in that moment we need to be reminded that we should not be weary in doing well in a broken world. Galatians 6, 9, Paul says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And let me just say that you cannot not give up on your own. You need the Holy Spirit for this kind of perseverance. Third, pray for justice without, seeking, without ceasing. Pray for justice. You know, some of you have been have experienced injustice to a degree that, that others maybe in this room don't know. And maybe you're the only one that knows the injustice that you've experienced. And you're wondering if like God is just sort of this cosmic grandfather that is kind and warm, and he doesn't really want to like do anything hard like punish people. He doesn't really, you know, bring discipline. And for you, that's no kind of God. Because you know that the things that have been done to you deserve justice. I want you to know that, that God is a God of justice. There are those who have been wronged in incredible ways. And there's a day of recompense that's coming. God will bring vengeance. And it's not a wrong thing to, to wrestle 
in your heart with these things and say, God, I need justice and I long for justice. Will you bring it? Will you bring the justice that I long for? In fact, we see a, a model of this in the persistent widow who is coming to an unjust judge in Luke 18. Do you remember the story? She is asking for justice day and night from an unjust judge. And eventually, he even, he even gives her justice. Even this unjust judge does. And Jesus explains it this way. In Luke 18, 6 to 8, he says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay longer for them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Because he will come to bring justice for his people. Even the martyrs in heaven, right? In heaven right now, martyrs died for their faith. Images of faithful living for Christ. Revelation 6.10 says they are crying out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Some of you are like, man, I don't have room in my theology for that kind of justice of God. Well, then we need to open up some room and read the Bible. Fourth, trust that God always hears your prayers. Habakkuk was wondering, does God hear my prayers? When experience is calling to question the goodness, justice, or power of God, to bring about his promises, know that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Do you hear that? Every one of them. There's no promise that God has given you that fails in Christ. Here's what that means. You need to figure out what the promises of God are. Well, how do I do that? Uh, start reading. Like, this is where we have the promises of God for you. And you're like, I want to know the easy, short answer now. No, just read the book. Read the book and find out what God has promised you. The promises are sweet, they're beautiful, they're eternal. Their promises now and forever. We want to make sure that we know what the right expectations of the promises of God are. It would be a bad thing to think that God had promised us something that he hadn't and set our life on it. We want to make sure we know God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, part of justice, fifth, is loving your local church. Maybe that's a curveball for some of you. But Jesus sums up the law in this way. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Here's, here's how we break up the law in two parts. Love God, love your neighbor. But in John, 1 John 3.23, John tells us how Christ defines and explains and gives life to the law for us who are in Christ. He says, in Christ, this is what the law is. This is the commandment, the law, that, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. That's part one. If you want to believe in God, it doesn't happen apart faith directed to Jesus Christ, his life, his work, his life and his works. But second, he goes on to say, not only that, it is to love one another. Speaking of Christians in a local church. So at least one aspect of doing justice means loving faithfully the people in your local church. It means being faithful to them in the way that you seek to to love them, minister to them, sanctify them. This is part of what doing justice is. Now, if you're here this morning, you're a non-Christian. I just have a question for you. I know you've heard all of this, and so much of this is for Christians, but if you're a non-Christian, who is it that is with you and for you in the sorrows of this life? Who is it that's going to be with you and for you in the life to come? If you're not in Christ, according to God's word, the lamentable reality of the brokenness of this world, it is actually the things that terrify you most in this world. These things are actually the basement, not the ceilings of the judgment that is to come. That's according to the scriptures. See, the greatest injustice in creation, according to the Bible, is rejecting the God-man Jesus who came to take on your sins and your sorrows, to die for you for the punishment that you deserved. And to be raised from the dead to declare that you might be made right from God and saved from his coming wrath if you put your faith in him. Don't leave without putting your faith in him so that you might know the mercy of God and so the fulfilling of his justice upon you. In conclusion, I'm reminded in this text of a scene from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read that before? It's like one of the best works of literature, one of the best Christian books that's been written. It's fictitious, but it's a book where the names of the people actually describe their traits. John Bunyan actually wrote this book 
from a lamentable place, a prison where he spent a ton of time. And in that story, he tells about Christian who is on his way to the celestial city. He begins with a burden on his back and a book in his hand, and he's running from the city of destruction to the city of God. And along the way, he meets this guy, Hopefulness. But they end up in the land of of the castle of the giant of despair, this giant despair, right? Lamentable situation. And he drags them down into this stinky, dark dungeon. It's horrible. Can't stand to be there. Uh, They don't have food or water. He's beating them day after day because his kind wife told him to do that. And so as they're they're being beaten, uh, he's trying to essentially, it says, drive them to kill themselves in their misery in their despair. He even at one point shows them the bones of the other people that he has killed to drive them to give up. But at midnight on Saturday, we're told that Christian and hopeful began to pray. In other words, they didn't just sit in despair, but they began to look to God and speak to God. A lot like Paul and Silas in Acts 16 who were praying to God on Saturday. And they continued to pray through the night when we read of an amazing escape. It says, now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in this passionate speech. What a fool, quoteth he. What a fool am I, thus to lie in the stinking dungeon when I may well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I am persuaded will open any lock in doubting castle. And using the key, Christian and hopeful, escaped. Now, be reminded he prayed all night for this. Long prayers, trusting God, looking to God from the hopelessness of his situation. And it was the promises of God that got him out of it. That this violence, that this chaos That this sadness, these lamentable situations that are all around me that I can't see out of, now with these promises, I'm able to look up and see God and know this is not the way things are always going to be. That God has much better things for me. And maybe they'll come in part tomorrow, or maybe they won't come until Jesus descends in glory. But it's not a question of if God will deliver me, but when. We need the promises of God. See, lament, it moves us from pain to the promises of God in Christ. That's the journey we're going to be taking as we move through this book. Let's pray together.